Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your existentialist, Emo Nut, and Religionless Church host, Mason Meniga. In this episode, I talk with Tuhina Verma-Rash. Tuhina is an ordained minister in the ELCA. She's also a blogger and coordinator for young adult engagement for arts, religion, culture. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Salvage My Dream. Salvage My Dream was a solo indie experimental artist. You can get connected with both Tihina and Salvage My Dream and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, mesameninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church.
God I meets the So today we have Tuhina, and Tuhina is a ordained pastor in the ELCA, and she is also the young adult coordinator for ARC, Arts, Religion, and Culture. I always sometimes want to like switch those words around, and it ends up being like whatever you know, like Acker or something like that. Brack. Brack. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> or uh, I actually I went to an RCA school in college, so that like the same you know letters, but all flipped around, but. Um, but anyway, you are the young adult coordinator for ARC and you do a number of other things you, you write. And, um, so you, you have a number of things going on in your life. Uh, but I am curious and I ask this, uh, question for everybody, uh, on my podcast is who is the Reverend Tuhina Verma Rash to Tuhina Verma Rash? Wow. Um, who is the Reverend Tuhina Vermarash to Tuhina Verma? Um, I guess I'm a wanderer. Mm. Uh, I also have like that imposter syndrome type deal of yep. like the Reverend Tuhina Vermarash. It's like, oh, not worthy. Um, how do I have this? What happened? You know, like whose great idea was this? <laughs> um, but I think like ultimately, like I, I'm a wandering Aramean. I think it's mm. just. I have questions and a lot of times my questions lead me out into the world seeking for, it's like Kane in Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's just, I'm really a wanderer. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Yeah. Wandering wanderer. So part of that, uh, wandering and wa uh, wondering and wandering is you have a really interesting spiritual journey. So tell us about your hyphenated spiritual journey. Yeah, so I was born and raised in a devout Hindu household mm. in Denver, Colorado. Okay. Um, but my mom loves to point out to me and other people that she's like, but she was born in a Lutheran hospital. <laughs> it's this cosmic joke, right? That the Lutherans yep. have a hold of me from like day one. Yep. Um, yeah, so I grew up in this devout Hindu household in Denver, Colorado. And at that time, there were not a lot of like devout Hindus. Mm. And so there's, and I think like, it's really different, like what community is to Christians versus what community is to other denominations. Um, and I think that I grew up in this very, 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 very closed knit community of my mom, my dad, and my brother, because that was the faith community that mm -hmm. I knew. Uh, growing up. And then in college one day, one of my friends is like, do you want to go to church with me? And I'm like, hell no. Um, this was also in rural South Carolina, which is, you know. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Like looking like this in rural South Carolina, like, mm -hmm. you know, being a brown woman in South Carolina, not, not awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was kind of like, no, hell no, I'm not going to church with you. And she's like, look, if anybody gives you any crap, I'll kick their ass. And I was like, mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And then she's like, and there's free food because it's a college dinner. And I'm like, <laughs> um, 
so I started going to the Lutheran campus ministry, um, kind of like weekly get togethers over a meal and just kind of the pastor who was there, uh, his name's Chris Hebner. He's like, I'm not out to convert you just hang out with us. And I'm like, wow, I've actually never been told that in church. Like, Mm. I'm not out to convert you. Just come hang out with us. Like, that's it. And I was like, that's actually pretty, wow. I'm really curious with who you are now. Um, Yeah. So I would just show up week to week to week and hang out with people and break bread together and just kind of share what was going on in our lives. And then I graduated from college and, you know, wasn't part of the college community anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, But I went back for grad school and met my spouse there and we were going to get married. And then his parents are like, oh, we're not going to tell people the date until you tell people, like, until you book the church. And I was like, oh, what kind of a Christian are you? Um, Mm. Yeah. And my spouse is like, well, I grew up Lutheran. I'm like, oh my God, I know a Lutheran pastor. (laughs) I got this. I got this. Um, so we got married in the church and I you know, was really convinced, like, I'm going to be a Hindu. He's going to stay Christian. If we have a family, we're going to be enlightened. Mm. You know, we'll go to both. The kids will pick. And so many years later, we have no children and I'm a Lutheran pastor. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is the very, um, condensed, abridged version of my spiritual journey. <laughs> So what have you learned about yourself from this spiritual journey? Um, so this sounds really weird. Um, I, I came from this culture, um, also as the child of immigrants. So my parents immigrated from India mm-hmm. in 1970 and my brother and I were born and raised in the States. And it's a very like common expectation when you are the child of immigrant parents that you have to do well, you have to succeed, mm-hmm. you have to perfect because your parents gave up every damn thing to come to this new land for better opportunities and everything. And so I just have this horrible perfectionist streak that runs through me. Mm. And I think that was instilled in me since I, you know, since the day I I like showed up at this Lutheran hospital Mm. day one. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I spent a lot of my early life thinking that I wasn't good enough. I wasn't worthy. I wasn't worthy of love. I wasn't worthy of grace. I wasn't worthy of anything because mm-hmm. I had to work for it. I had to earn it. And I had to, um, and I had to be this not person, but this thing that my parents could be like, look, we have raised the perfect daughter who does everything we say. Um, and she's achieved so much. And it just kind of got to this point where I felt like an object. Um, that I actually wasn't human, I wasn't a person, that I wasn't Tuhina Verma Rash. Um, and when one of the things that I really realized being in the church, um, and things that I realized like living out like a baptismal calling is that I am a beloved child of God, I am worthy, I am worth fighting mm-hmm. for, I am worth dying for. Like that, even like. 
saying those words, it still shocks me. Like I am living for it. I am worth dying for. I am, I am worthy of love. I am worthy um, to be who God created me to be um, in this beautiful mess of a person. Mm-hmm. It makes sense why you're Lutheran. <laughs> it totally makes sense. <laughs> as I'm hearing this, I'm like, I'm hearing uh, Martin Luther's story as well. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's actually really fascinating um, that I think it's like, it is that theology that like makes my heart sing, that resonates Mm. in my bones, um, that I just really love. Um, And I think it's, it's not to say that anybody else's faith tradition or anybody else's upbringing is wrong. But I think it's like, that's what I've learned in the spiritual journey, because my family is still devoutly Hindu. And and we still love one another. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this realization of like, this is where God speaks to me the loudest. It's almost, it's like where God sings to me. Mm-hmm. So you hold many identities within yourself. How does one hold so many identities that make us up as individuals? And then even within the world, there's many identities. How does one hold all of those identities as one in the world as well? Uh, piece by piece. <laughs> um, I think it's really hard because like the Western world. So like, I like to joke about how like Aristotle ruined my life when I was in graduate school, because that's how I learned rhetoric. I learned mm. a Western form of communication. I learned a Western form of argumentation that things are either this way or they are this other way. Um, and I think that I come from a tradition where multiple truths can exist in the same space at the same time. Um, And for me, that gives me an immense sense of being able to hold all of these pieces together of who I am and how I am um, and how I'm created to be is that we're not just one thing in this world that like um, you're a podcaster, you're a person. Mm work at Augsburg, you know, you do all these things. And so they're like facets of who you are. Um, and it's these facets that are all put together that kind of like form the complete mm-hmm. um, person of who, of, of who you are. And so I think we're all facets of a gem. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the illustration or the metaphor that I use is that there's um, different facets that reveal different parts of light and different parts of information. Um, but you need all of the facets put together to see what the entirety looks like. Mm-hmm. So I love the, the metaphor of a mosaic um, because, you know, that's exactly what you're getting at. Yeah. And the mosaic is actually really beautiful because it's different pieces. It's different broken parts, too, mm-hmm. um, that are put together and that like you can see the pieces individually. OK, I love movies. And so I love the movie Clueless. Um, <laughs> Cher talks about a Monet where like um, that, you know, from a distance, it looks great, but up close, it's just a hot mess. Um, But that's kind of, that's a really bad metaphor. Um, (laughs) But I think about mosaics that if you're up close, you see these individual pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you step back, you see like the entirety of the picture.
we mentioned this at the top of the episode that you're ordained in the ELCA, which I, I don't know if necessarily this is statistically true. It probably is, but it's the whitest denomination in America. And there's a movement within the denomination to decolonize it. What does the work of decolonize, decolonization look like in the ELCA and even in other denominations? So, um, wow. Okay. So yes, the ELCA is the whitest denomination in the United mm. States. I find it hilarious that the Church of Latter-day Saints has us beat in diversity. Wow. Right? Right? Like Wow. Right. Yeah. So mind blown. Um, but I think like what does it mean to decolonize? And I think it's a really this is a Western Christian issue that really needs to be talked about because Christianity was never, Christianity didn't start out as this colonizing mm-hmm. entity. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, Christianity was like this really subversive movement. Right, right. Um, but then, you know, we get Constantine and then we get empire involved and mm-hmm. then we get, um, you know, like human history comes in and like medieval history and then like colonizing. Mm-hmm. And so, the form of Christianity that had been communicated throughout the means of colonization was that either we are going to make you civilized um, and you're going to be civilized, but you will never be fully civilized because you're not, you're not white like us, but we'll, we'll try and get you to the best place that we can. Um, Or we're just going to eliminate you because you're not worth our time or effort to actually try to civilize. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a lot of this that's inherent in Western Christian thought, Mm -hmm. um, particularly with like, with like the history of missionary mindset of we're going to go out and we're going to save whatever population needs to be saved. That is not us. Um, So I think like that's where this very much either or mindset comes in. And so what it means for me to decolonize is what does it mean to make equal room? for spaces, voices, places, beliefs that are not going to be oppressed by the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, the thing is, it's like a lot of like ELCA West, like kind of like ELC in the United States, Lutheranism in the United States, um, that if you kind of like go through the Midwest, um, the Midwestern United States, mm-hmm. that there is like this very kind of like Western European Scandinavian culture that's very Mm. tightly woven in with a Lutheran identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is stuff that I don't relate to. Like, I don't relate to like Lutefisk feeds. I don't relate (laughs) to, um, and it's not to say that I don't, I don't, when you conflate culture and theology, and culture and belief is where it, it really gets to be an issue for me because it's like, I get how Ludafisk is like this cultural thing. It's a cultural meal. That's awesome. That's great. Um, but when people conflate it with theology, it's like Ludafisk is Lutheran. And it's like, tell me how it's Lutheran. Like, tell me what makes Ludafisk theologically Lutheran. Tell me where it is in the Book of Concord. And I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, there's nothing more Lutheran than rotten fish, right? Fish soaked in lye? I mean, like, 
I am still just trying to like, I, I've never had Ludafisk. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this. <laughs> and, like, and it's not to say like, I mean, like culturally people have their weird foods. Like, you know, there's some stuff that I've eaten where my friend, like where my American friends are like, you put that in your mouth because it tastes good. Oh, wow. That can go a ton of different ways. Anyway. Um, yeah. I also have a highly inappropriate sense of humor. Um, you're well, you're, you're an ELCA pastor. I mean, that's kind of comes with the territory. Um, but I really think, um, what does decolonizing mean and what does it mean to look at something because like we can never separate theology from culture, um, that theology is not created in a vacuum. Um, and I think like, that's kind of like this weird Western thought of like theology is created in a vacuum. Like we had just been handed this thing. It's like, no, there's like actually a lot of cultural markers that go with this. And I think about kind of like how theologies have come up in different places throughout the world where it's kind of like, what does theology look like in the midst of our culture as opposed to here we have this theology, let's just go ahead and interwine our culture with it and impose it on everybody. We have Robin Fisher today. Fisher, right? You, you don't go, it's not, nothing too fancy about that. All right. I, I kind of figured, but I didn't know how the, the English do that. But I'm an old fish. <laughs> Wonderful. So we have Robin Fisher, and you're not doing this project anymore uh, from what I've seen on Facebook because I've, I've followed your stuff for a while. Uh, but you have a wonderful project uh, that has really meant a lot to me uh, because of what that project is connected to. Uh, but you had a project called Salvage My Dream that I, I think was, it's, it's hard to leave, even really put a, a genre specific to it, but uh, I really appreciated the work that you did with, with Salvage My Dream. Um, and, and I was kind of mentioning you, Robin, prior to this recording, is that Salvage My Dream, the way I even first heard about Salvage My Dream was through the... <laughs> through the farewell video uh, by my favorite band of all time, the most influential entity in my life, The Chariot. Uh, and your music kind of was underlaid in that video. And when I first heard it, I thought maybe, but is this a Chariot thing? And did they make this special recording for, for this video? And then I, I heard the rest of it. I'm like, oh, this is not The Chariot, but whatever this is, is, is something I need to get myself into. And, and so that's what I did. I, I started following your work and it, I really fell in love with it. Um, and yeah, so what you were kind of were mentioning before this particular recording with all the problems I was having before, but how did, how did that even come about? How did you get connected with, with this chariot video and with the chariot in general? Like what, what all transpired with that to make that happen? And you, and kind of what was the, the effect of it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on Mason. Um, yeah, appreciate having the chat. And I guess the way that that whole thing came about is um, I met a guy, uh, a guy from Atlanta, a filmmaker called Derek Circe. And then he was, he was a friend of a friend who was traveling through the UK 
uh, where I was living at the time. I'm, I'm obviously British. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we became friends and I basically was doing this thing at the time um, where I was making all these theme songs and stuff like that for, you know, various friends of mine, just, just messing around and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I made one for Derek and Derek shot me uh, in, in return, shot me like a, a, a music video. And then, you know, Derek happens to be really super good friends with um, one of the guys from the chariot. So huh. he was the one who's been doing a lot of the editing work for those guys. He did the, did the film. He did some, some music stuff before some, some like video stuff. And, Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, uh, he dropped my track into he. Ba- you know, I I got a message one day and he's saying, "Hey, do you mind if I use this salvage my dream track for, for for something?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, whatever, go for it," you know. And um, and then um, a couple of days later, my my phone. Stop there for a sec. Did you even know really much about the chariot or no, 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 you had no, nothing. You had no idea. Like, well, this is the thing. It's like you know, although maybe there's like some similarities of intent that you know the the, the two genres are like very very different <laughs> totally and, uh, i'm i'm just, I, i'm not really you know i i did kind of grow up in the hardcore scene and like going to punk shows and stuff like that but you know in more recent years i i kind of lost touch with it a little bit so it was really really interesting now that there's this huge link between you know the kind of like christian hardcore scene and and the stuff that i'm doing you know which is you know something different um but yeah basically my phone just one day began to blow up and then i suddenly realized that the the that somehow there'd been some major publicity about salvage my dream and i was currently at work actually i was working at this hot dog <laughs> shop and um and then yeah no i i realized that i realized what, what was going on with the video and um you know it was i was really moved actually by the whole experience just to to, to see the track put against some video and a story that was like so compelling that some that so many people mm. it was like it was you know i mean it was kind of like the song that broke the hearts of like hundred thousand people you know yeah because it's like, hey hey we totally did your favorite band and like we're gonna do one last tour and that's it you know it's like when you <laughs> see what 2006 and then 2000 i, I forget what, what the years were but you know there was one shot in there and i thought oh damn that's the heartbreaker right there yeah, you know yep. and they go the beginning year and the end year and and um yeah it just so happened that uh you know that like the emotion surrounding that breakup was then a- attached to this music that, that i was mm. making and um it was yeah it was a really really crazy experience um to to suddenly you know have all these i had inboxes and inboxes full of emails and downloads mm. and people reaching out and stuff like that and yeah it's it's been absolutely amazing to be honest with you like, i'm really truly grateful to those guys for for you know um helping you know i mean obviously you know it was done for a purpose to kind of add some weight to the video but you know just for you know thanks for choosing me i guess it's interesting yeah <laughs> have you been in contact with any of the guys from the chariot since then yeah, I mean, there was, there was, you know, I spoke to Stephen over Facebook a little um, every now and again, and then um, also. Okay, other... uh, by the way, I just found out today. So Stevis's new band um, is called the Fever Three Three Three, and they, I kid you not, just got nominated for Grammy Rock Performance of the Year. Wow. Okay. So just know you're 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 messaging a guy that could potentially win a, a Grammy. He'll be at the Grammys, I would imagine. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, all those guys, they seem such hardworking guys. So, mm-hmm. you know, they probably deserve it. But yeah, I, you know, I, I've been, I was in touch with Stephen a little bit and uh, we, we were going to meet up because I moved down to London shortly afterwards. And, uh, but the meeting, the meeting never really transpired. Mm. But then also they're friends with a band called Listener. Yeah. Um, and he became a really big, you know, that fan of the, you know, the salvage my dream thing. And then really? we started to exchange a couple of emails, like not like only a couple, but yeah, it's been, it's been, uh, it's, it's been a, you know, it was a, it was a wild ride, man. It was a really wild ride. Um, because honestly, like th- those like listener and the chariot are two acts that are like touring and, or, or at least they were touring and stuff. And mm-hmm. I've, you know, con- considering what I'm doing, you know, I, I never really toured. Um, you know, I have had my reasons for that. And, um, but it was much more of like a, you know, a, a bedroom experiment project, you know, where mm-hmm. once, you know, maybe I'm going to record one song onto like an old tape recorder, all acoustic. And then the next song is going to be loads of like synths and sound effects mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. So um, I think in the end, you know, I, I, I did try to play some shows, but because every song was so different, it was very, very difficult to, to then remold these tracks down to to become something that could work live, and even with a band, you know, I, I found that it just became you know, a, a frustrating process. Um, and I think you know, I kind of learned my lesson from that whole thing. In that, although it's really cool to be able to do what you want in the studio, um, when you you know if you if you're making an album where every track is a different set of instruments or a different techni- technical setup or something. Thing. to take that on the road is like near impossible so you have mm. to change everything mm-hmm. or you know or which which i found really frustrating because i'd worked so hard you know sometimes for two years i'll be working on an album you know and then eventually i'd have it as 99 percent perfect or something like this uh, and then i wasn't able to, to do the same with the live performance mm. so in the end like uh you know that project ended mostly because i got i became quite disillusioned with the fact that i was making these studio albums that I was really proud of that I put so much effort into, but the main kind of, um, you know, I guess like emotional comeback, you know, that you get from being able to make music is, 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 is to go out and play it live mm. in front of people and meet people and stuff like that. So there was like very little feedback in that area because I kind of refused to play shows because it just did not sound like the record. So these days, um, you know, I'm I'm doing a new project, and the new project I'm doing, um, like studio is, is the last thing that I'm doing now. Um, really? I think after, after ten years of of doing, you know, writing and recording at the same time, now I, you know, I have a rig with like a, a sampler and some effects and stuff like that, and I'm doing everything live, and I'm basically writing everything as I'm jamming, you know, it's a very, very, it's like I'm doing live. And then after the live, I go to the studio, maybe months and months later, after I've played it on stage a bunch of times. And so huh. far, so far, it's been really good. Like I'm probably going to bring some old salvage songs into this new project. Um, hmm. The project's name is Scar Polish, by the way. Um, and it's kind of a little bit more um, noisy, a little bit more electronic, but still at the same time, you know, is, is, you know, I suppose there's much less like songwritery uh, stuff in there and, and it's much more kind of, I guess, 
experimental and stuff. Hmm. But I'm I'm still gonna gonna do some salvage songs in there, no doubt. Last question: what What are ways people can get connected with you and your work? And um, and you, you mentioned that you're kind of touring around Berlin right now, possibly a little bit of a mini European tour. What are ways that people can get connected to you and your work and um and maybe some of the future stuff that you're working on with Scar Polish? Yeah, sounds good. Well, if, if anyone wants to write and say anything, it's uh, scarpolish at gmail.com. Um, mm. But mostly, like, if you want to just hear some music or see what I'm up to these days, um, you can, yeah, just Google Scarpolish. Um, it's on Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube as well. And or just add me on Facebook. You know, that's, uh, I'm also like super happy just to, you know, connect with, with everyone. So, yeah. And then also, um, I, I didn't mention this before, but um, I actually really wanted to talk about um, this film that I worked on a couple of years okay. ago. Um, and it's a film called The Subject. Mm. And, the, 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 and I, did, I did the soundtrack, basically. Okay. And the soundtrack is like 50% Salvage My Dream songs and 50% um, stuff that I composed for, you know, for yeah. that, that movie that's just music. Um, and I really, um, I don't know, like it's been doing the rounds of, of some film festivals and stuff. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a feature film. I don't know if it's available online right now. I know that at some point it will be. Um, um, but if you just Google the subject movie or the subject film, um, and but basically it's, a, it's a, a drama that becomes a thriller. And it's the premise is um, what happens when you, destroy your romantic relationship to use it as the insp- as the to use the person as the subject for art you know ah but interesting really very very psychological film yeah. um and, and you know i guess in a way if people ever really wanted to kind of watch something that had a load of salvage my dream songs in like this is the movie it's, <laughs> it's, you know, i did you know 100% of the music in it so yeah, yeah, highly recommend everyone to go watch the subject. Awesome. Um, directed and filmed by Sarah Barker. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Robin. It's been delightful to to talk with you. And um, yeah, I, I wish the best for you. I really have always appreciated your music over the last few years since I first heard Salvage My Dream. And um, yeah, I, I hope the best for you. And hopefully maybe even at some point you can come across to the States and do a little tour here even. I might, I'd absolutely love to. Awesome. Thank you so much. What is a personal story from your work of decolonization that excites you with hope? Maybe it was a, a, a story where uh, you looked back and said, that's why I do this. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I never thought that I would be a pastor in the Lutheran church. Like mm-hmm. I've like, my parents had high hopes for me. Like <laughs> you're going to be a doctor. You're going to be an engineer. You're going to be married to a rich man, you know, stuff like that. Um, and I end up being this Lutheran pastor. Um, and I think I had a really hard time in seminary because seminary was a very white place. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started to kind of learn like, 
oh, there's like this weird conflation with culture and theology. And this is a world in which I do not fit. Mm. Um, this is a world in which I don't know vocabulary, the world in which I do not know the norms. And so for me, that was really challenging. And the ELCA requirement for being a minister of word and sacrament is that you have to do an internship for a year at a parish or a year-long chaplaincy. And because I was still trying to figure out like, who am I in the midst of this mess that I did half time in the parish and half time in a nursing home. Mm. And I walk into this parish and I tell my supervisor, um, like, if this sucks, I'm done. He's like, great. Let's, how do we make it not suck, Mm. not for you? And I was really intrigued by that because it's like everyone, like the other systems that were in place were just telling me, like, just suck it up, put your head down and move your way through and just try to get through it. But here I encountered the supervisor who's like, look, you know, you clearly like have this love and desire to do this. How do you know, how do we as a community and as a church help you? Um, So that just blew my mind. But when I was in the call process, there was a woman on my call committee and she is Latinx. And she had said, when I saw Tuhina at the altar, I saw my, I saw a place for Mm. myself as a Latinx woman in this Mm. church. And so for me, that's like, that's part of why I stay Mm -hmm. is that, um, representation matters. It Mm. matters a lot. Um, and so when I'm asked to speak or when I'm asked to go places or do things, I do say yes, but I say yes with a caveat. Um, the caveat is that you don't get to put words in my mouth. Right. Like I show up in the fullness of who God created to be with this voice and with these words and not with anybody else's words. Mm -hmm. You recently began work as the coordinator of young adult engagement with arts, religion, and culture. How do you envision young adults engaging with the intersection of arts, religion, and culture? I am glad you asked that question. Um, I think part of theological education is that it's been so siloed mm-hmm. uh, and particularly looking at mainline Protestant denominations um, that, you know, I went to seminary and it's like, and if people have like any form of vocational discernment that involves theology, the first gut reaction is go to seminary. Um, and that's actually not my first gut reaction. I think mm-hmm. my first gut reaction is to find your people. Um, and your people may not be in seminary. Um, your people may be in a community of arts. Your community, your people may be in a community of practice. Um, your people may be a faith community, not necessarily seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, and your people may be um, a community that finds different ways to embody faith. So like social justice organizations. And what does it look like if we don't live in these silos anymore? of what does it mean to look at vocation holistically and to look at vocation spiritually, um, to look at it incarnationally, so like in an embodied form, that spirituality is more than just kind of like smells and bells. It's Mm -hmm. more than just like the incense that rises up. It's what we do um, as embodied people. And one of my 
one of my deep passions, um, particularly in this work with ARC and in this work as a young adult coordinator, is what does it mean to find community of practitioners, of people to connect, of people who are engaged in the arts, of people who are wondering, like, is there a place for me in this? And if there isn't a place for me, how do, how do we create the places and spaces where we can holistically be? Um, and so what does it mean to, to help people um, in such a way to accompany them and to wonder with them and to journey with them as to what does this new intersection look like? What, is, um, what can artistic education, social justice education and theological education look like not separated from one another, mm. but intertwined with one another and not necessarily resulting in an MDiv or not necessarily mm-hmm. resulting in like, I'm going to be the pastor of a church. Right. Um, what does it look like to be engaged in, in a really kind of Trinitarian way? Right. You said that um, ARC or ARC uh, is long known for its work in theopoetics, which has sort of been discussed in my previous Religionless Church episodes. How has theopoetics shaped your theology? I think there's there's a part of theopoetics for me that um, really resonates with me and um, the word became flesh and lived among us. Hmm. And so for me, theopoetics is a very embodied practice that is intertwined with my practice as a writer. Um, so I am firmly a person who believes that words matter. Um, unlike some other people in this current administration. (laughs) Um, but the practice of writing and the practice of my faith and the practice of who I am for me really just kind of speaks to me as, as what theopoetics is to me. Mm. Um, that it's not that it's not kind of like this top down hierarchical thing, mm-hmm. but it's kind of um it's like the ruble of icon um that it's sitting around a table and that there is a space for you at the table when mm-hmm. you view on it mm-hmm. um and that it's not this hierarchical thing, but it's this very relational artistic, meaningful existence. What sort of potential does theopoetics have with young adults? A lot. I mean, <laughs> I, I think there's, there's so much. And particularly like when I think about the gatherings for ARC and theopoetics, that what does it mean to disseminate information in, in a communal form? What does it mean to express yourself artistically, um, not just as an object observer object relationship but in an intertwined interactive relationship Mm. um and what does it mean to look at this theologically and spiritually that um that a lot of times i think 
in the practice of institutional religion that it is kind of like God object us act. It's, it's this weird kind of like object relationship. Mm -hmm. And how do you kind of like remove the object and focus on the relationship? And I think that young adults, particularly in this day and age, at least the ones that I've encountered, um, are not looking particularly for careers in this day and age. They're looking right. for causes. Mm. Um, I see so many people that are passionate about what they want to do and what they bring to the world and who they bring to the world that it's kind of like, how, how do we empower these how do we empower like these actions and these embodied actions to be passionate about causes and not just be focused on like this capitalist career mindset? As a good old Lutheran, I'm sure you're familiar with Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity. Yeah. How does, yeah. How does your work relate, connect and or build on religionless Christianity? Um, I think part of it for me is that like as a wandering person who has had the gift of being part of different denominations and different worship communities and being accepted into these different places and spaces, mm -hmm. I get to see what embodied faith looks like at um, once it's said, um, you know, once a benediction is given and people walk out the doors or once you hear go in peace, serve the Lord, thanks be to God. Mm -hmm. um, that like, what is real religion? Like, what does faith look like when you walk out the doors of a church? I think a lot of it has been, um, I really wonder kind of like, I really, yeah, I'm going to have to think about that one because it's like, I'm actually still really wrestling with mm -hmm. like, buildings and walls and people and mm. community and times and spaces and that it's not just one thing mm -hmm. um that it's this relationship of things mm. of people of practices mm -hmm. um and how is that lived out and how is that practiced and how is that embodied or how is it not mm -hmm. Uh, so this is outside of some of the, the theological conversation we've had. Uh, but you say in your bio that you and your spouse love to watch movies together. What's oh, my your, God, yes! Yeah, what's your favorite movie you and your spouse have last watched together? Oh, my God. So we have very different tastes in movies. Okay. So my, my favorite movie in the whole wide world is Doctor Strange Love. Um, oh, old yes. The atomic bomb. Um, yeah, kind of a timely movie, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I actually wrote a history paper about the his, like the um, the mass panic that was caused by um, by like communist witch hunts mm -hmm. and how that was actually comedically portrayed in Doctor Strangelove huh. and how ultimately it doesn't matter in the end because if this you know if these kind of like pogroms win in this such a way then it's kind of like well we're all kind of doomed mm. um i love really bad action movies like <laughs> like i made i made my spouse watch sylvester stallone's over the top have you seen it I've not, but I, oh my I mean, God. Okay. most Sylvester Stallone like action movies, I can see where this is going. Okay, so this was Sylvester Stallone's attempt at making a family-friendly movie. Um, 
where he is um, a truck driving arm wrestler who picks his kid up from military school and he and his kid have this really fractured relationship. And so like, how do they become father and son throughout the course of like going to, um, you know, going to visit this kid's mom and Sylvester Stallone's estranged wife and like getting involved in this arm wrestling contest to earn a new big rig. I mean, like, yeah, it's so... Yeah, that sounds like a, a Sylvester Stallone action movie. <laughs> Family-friendly action movie. Oh, yeah, even e- even more so. Uh, yeah. Last question. Oh, do, okay. do you have any yeah, more to add? Know, like, so, um, yeah, really bad action movies. Um, yeah, okay. I'm just going to stop right there. <laughs> awesome. How can listeners get connected with you and your work? That's the last question, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, so I, uh, tweet more than I should at T-V-R-A-S-C-H-E. That's also where you can find me on Instagram. That is also where you can find me on Facebook is where you can also find me on YouTube. Um, I kind of just kind of like having the same name for things. Um, you can also find me on Medium for, um, hashtag shut the hell up. Um, and That's, uh, um, Jason is on that, right? Jason Chestnut? Yes. So Jason Chestnut and I were co-conspirators for Shut the Hell Up and Fuck This Shit. Nice. Yes, I, I, I've actually, I've had Jason on a previous episode. Uh, he was like my fifth or sixth episode. So I oh, wow. love his work. Yes, I love Jason <laughs> and his work. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, so um, that was a collaboration with Jason with um, Shut the Hell Up and Fuck This Shit. Um, yeah, and that's, yeah, I guess I have a LinkedIn page that I forgot about. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, that's where you can find me on the internet. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation. I am a big Theopoetics nut. I, I love that work. And so- Yo, come to the conference. Yes, I really want to. I would, lo- I would love to. I- I'm not sure if I'll be able to for sure, but I am definitely looking into it and I, I would love to be Oakland. able to come. It's at the Oakland Peace Center. It's in I, my- I did see that. I did <laughs> see that. You're, you're in Oakland? So I am actually, my first call was in Oakland, but I am now across the bay from Oakland in the- Okay. Pens- but so in, in the area. I'm in the area, but I still consider Oakland to be my hood. Cool. Sweet. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. And uh, yeah, thank you uh, for all the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you. episode left you hanging and you're wanting more from Tuhina and Robin from Salvage My Dream, you can find links to connect to them and their work in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmeniga.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, If Religionless Church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you 
with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction now and forever. So be it. Bye. Uh-huh.